Today's reading is from Ruth 3, verses 1 through 9. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose woman, women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer for our family. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, and now I'm going to invite our very own Anna Wayne to come up to share uh, a creative response uh, to these verses. Um, whatever. This is called Under His Wings. Counting the stars in the night sky and each sleeping breath he takes, she wonders what happens next. Sitting on the threshing floor in the middle of the night, what can become of this? His face is peaceful in the light of the moon, and she can see the kindness etched into the lines of his face. Back to the silent space of waiting, the unanswered questions. God had allowed her husband to be taken from her, and yet he has still proven to be good, a God who sees everything and forgets nothing, not even her. Each day gleaning has taught her the quiet discipline of hope in the midst of the unknown. Boaz himself had reminded her that she was under the wings of God. But is this man willing to redeem her? He has provided barley, a field, and shown his favor for her. Is he the man she and Naomi know him to be? steadfast, hardworking, righteous, and just. Will his arms hold and protect her? Will she be precious in his sight or a burden to carry? Or will he reject her, the foreigner Moabite, a widow? Will his merriment from the evening cloud his judgment? Will he mistake her presence at his bedside? Oh, to have the righteousness of a woman who walks by faith and not by sight, a woman strong enough to never doubt the providence of her God a woman so courageous and loyal, she pledged her life to the unknown. The barley shifts and he stirs alarmed, the hour is late. Who are you, he asks startled. And without any doubt, fear or trembling, she responds, I am Ruth, spread your wings over me, pledge your faithfulness to me. Boaz is eager to redeem her, but he must ask a kinsman closer than himself before saying yes. It is back to waiting, Back to the unknown, after all this time gleaning, believing, and hoping, there is still no firm answer in sight. She is calm walking back to town in the dark early hours of morning, carrying the weight of six quarts of barley. A symbol of a promise, a show of providence, an arrow pointing back to her God. And she knows no matter what, that wherever he leads her, she will go and she will find refuge. Good uh, morning, everybody. Oh, geez. Come on now. Good morning. Good morning. I, ah, man, I am really excited uh, to be here. I hope that doesn't fall. Uh, 
That's what I need to do, start tearing stuff up up here. But if the Lord leads me to tear stuff up, I'm going to tear some stuff up now. Uh, good morning. So we are in a series um, walking through the book of Ruth. We're in chapter 3 uh, this morning. And uh, we've uh, begun this series a couple of weeks ago, and just our, our aim and our hope for the Ruth series was that we might see how Ruth's story is set in the larger work of God's redemption for humanity. That, that, that how does this small story uh, uh, play into the bigger story that God is doing throughout the entire story of redemption? So just to recap the story thus far, Naomi is a Hebrew woman. She's from Bethlehem. She and her husband, they leave Bethlehem, their Jewish homeland, and they travel to the country of Moab, a place and a people that has been at odds with Israel for a thousand years. And despite the animosity, despite the violence that these two countries have exacted on each other, Naomi, her husband, and her two sons head to Moab because of severe famine in Bethlehem. They're, they're economic refugees. They're forced to make treacherous and hard-wrought decisions for their family because of the stark economic outcomes facing them. They spend 10 years in Moab. And during that time, Naomi's sons, they, they grow, they marry Moabite women. And then tragically, Naomi's husband and both sons die, leaving her and her daughters-in-law widowed. So we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, widowhood in the ancient world, especially for women, it was a, it was a poverty sentence. Widows were economically and physically vulnerable in the brutal patriarchal cultures and times of ancient Palestine. And it's at this point that Naomi makes uh, another hard decision. She decides to leave Moab and return back to the land of her youth, to, to head back to Bethlehem. And she entreats her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab, to stay in their hometown, rather than return to her. Naomi presumably understands the challenges of being a woman in a land that has been historically oppressive to your people. So she says, don't come with me, stay here. So she says to these two younger women, just stay in Moab, find husbands here, let me go. But one of their women, Ruth, commits to stay with Naomi and go where she goes, to stay where she stays, to live where she lives. She, Ruth clings uh, to Naomi. She covenants with Naomi, even to the point of saying, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And these two widows, one older and one younger, though we don't know their exact ages, they make the 30-mile trek. They have to ascend and descend the 2,000-foot elevation gain in the hills that surround the Dead Sea, which would have been between the region of Moab and Bethlehem. It would have taken them a little over a week to walk there. I suspect the the walk may have been in silence and sorrow and in tears. And I suspect it crossed the minds of these two broken women that parts of the terrain, though some of it is beautiful, other parts of it that they traversed was an apt representation of their own hearts, dry and dusty and maybe a bit hard and barren. And with death at their backs, they arrive in Bethlehem, having heard that the famine from 10 years previous that it's ended and a new day of bounty was abounding there in the area. Ruth 1 finishes with the good news that the barley harvest had just begun. And so once in Bethlehem, Naomi, she sends Ruth out to glean um, uh, whatever grain is left from the harvesters. And, and Ruth is faithful to do this. She's diligent, she's hardworking, and she's able to provide for herself and for Naomi. In God's providence, Ruth happens to be gleaning in the field of one of Naomi's distant relatives, a generous and gracious man named Boaz. And news of uh, this Moabite's care and commitment to Naomi, a Hebrew widow from Bethlehem, has spread throughout the city, including to Boaz. 
And in light of this news and the evidence of Ruth's care for Naomi, Boaz works quietly to ensure that Naomi and Ruth have what they need and that they're cared for. A few weeks go by, and now uh, we're in the story, and we're nearing the end of the barley harvesting season, and the women are still gleaning, though, and they're still in a vulnerable situation, and they're still hustling for survival. And that's where we find ourselves when we arrive at Ruth chapter 3. So in verse 1, One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be provided for. Naomi says, I've got to provide a a home for you. In some translations, it reads actually a home and a husband because of the cultural context that tied a widow's security, safety, and well-being tied it to marriage and to a man. The, the, The phrase in the original language, it just actually means a place of tranquility or repose or just straightway, a place of rest. It doesn't name marriage explicitly, actually. But in light of what will ensue in the story, as well as the cultural implications for Naomi's widowhood, what's remarkable here is that Naomi's whole concern is for Ruth and Ruth alone. Naomi sees it as her responsibility to see that that the destitute state and the reproach of widowhood represented in Israelite society, that that's resolved for Ruth. She takes up that cause for Ruth in Bethlehem. And there's no indication that, uh, that Naomi has any concern for herself, either primarily or even secondarily. Her sole care is for Ruth and Ruth alone. I think one of the things that we see um, as we walk through chapter 3 is different characteristics and qualities that Ruth and Naomi lift up that I think that they would commend to us. And this is where I think that we see the first one. What we see in Naomi's and Ruth's relationship is one that is covenanted and committed and faithful and rooted in love. What we see in these two women is, I'll use the word fidelity. Fidelity is a I don't know, it's kind of a bit old-timey word, maybe perhaps fallen out of favor and use today. When, when I Googled it, the first four pages of my Google search were about fidelity, investments, banking, and finance. <laughs> four pages deep, I just stopped looking after that. But the origin of the word is from the Latin that means faithful. And these women were faithful to each other, and in their lives and in their story were given a glimpse at a covenanted relationship that's built on love and mutuality but isn't built on romance. I'm grateful to Elder Marissa Stubbs for helping me see some of this. Ours is a society that idolizes and reveres the romantic. We've idolized marriage as the pinnacle of human relationships, and the church has capitulated to this idolatry and furthered it in many respects to the detriment and the pain and the demoralizing of those in our communities that are single, divorced, or widowed. And because of the veneration of marriage, communities, including and especially Christian communities, often approach single brothers and sisters as though their singleness is a part of their personhood that needs fixing. Those of us that are married, we're often quick to highlight, and rightly so, that the picture of Revelation Uh, In the revelation of the end of all things is the image of a wedding and a marriage and Christ's love for the church, but we fail to likewise celebrate the ways that our Christian Christian single brothers and sisters display to us the character of Jesus, who himself was single, yet fully embodying therein the full kingdom of God with, with nothing lacking. 
and still even. Even this dichotomy of the relationships, married or single, we can together miss the beautiful image that Ruth and Naomi provide to us, and that of deep communion and community with one another and with others, not in a romantic or even a family bloodline sense of the word, but rooted in care and love for one another, built on the hope that the God of Israel would and will and is providing salvation, built on the shared work of joining God in the restoration of all things. Naomi, an older Hebrew woman from Bethlehem, and Ruth, a woman from Moab, faithful to each other, displaying fidelity and love, aching to see a place where each could find home, where each could find a place of tranquility and rest. When I was in high school, uh, my family, we lived on Healy Drive in East Dallas. We'd lived there a couple of years, and then a new family, the Madisons, moved across the street from us. Didn't know them too well. They had a son, found out later, had a son that was a year younger than me, and they had a daughter that was a few years younger than me. Uh, We became friends. I got to know him because we would catch the bus together at the end of our block. Uh, We had different friend groups, so we didn't hang out a whole lot. But the way that our friendship began was one afternoon, we got off the bus, and um, we were walking home, and I got, like, violently ill, walking the three-quarters of a block from the bus stop home. And, and, and this is, it was, it was quite embarrassing. I'm, like, 16 years old. I'm trying to play it cool. I'm a junior in high school, but I'm still taking the bus because I didn't have a car. And so we're, I'm walking with Johnny Madison, Johnny was an amazing guy, handsome guy. So we're walking together. I don't quite know him. And I am throwing up in like every other yard on my block. I'm like walking. I'm like, no, I'm going to go. And then it's just like right there. And Johnny is like, whoa, yo. And, you know, then I'm done. I'm like, no, I'm cool. And I'm still trying to keep it together, right? Because you don't want to be like, no, nothing phases me. I'm a 16-year-old kid. And then, like, three more steps. I'm like, hi You know, again, my family will tell you I'm an incredibly loud vomiter. So, like, I'm waking up neighbors that are sleeping during the day. Johnny stayed with me the whole time. Now, that's nasty. You don't, don't know me, really? I mean, kind of wave across the street, doesn't really know me. Johnny stayed with me the entire time that I was sick. Walked me home, got me in, and from that point forward, you couldn't separate us. We grew up together. Johnny started coming to church with me. We were disciples together. We were on the wrestling team together. I was a year older, so I went to college, and um, Johnny was still uh, in the neighborhood Johnny was still on the wrestling team at our high school. I was in the wrestling uh, club in college, and so we'd come over and we'd work out. And my life was just going to shambles in college, and he was with me the whole time. Reminding me of who I was in Christ and who I was going to be. He stayed with me the whole time. Johnny went to college and graduated and began doing work um, in the LGBT community in Houston particularly in the black community, in raising the awareness about the mental health and physical health challenges facing that community. Johnny died tragically not long after college. His younger sister, Waukesha, she still calls me brother. A couple of weeks ago, she sent me a a text with a picture that I had long forgotten of a Bible that I gave to Johnny when he graduated from high school. 
Johnny clung to me. He was faithful to me. He loved me. He helped me make sure that I got to where I needed to, to get spiritually and emotionally. He was a brother to me. He displayed to me what it meant to be faithful and to have fidelity. When I was on the sabbatical, I don't know where, I was looking through some sabbatical notes, and I don't know who said this to me or where I saw it or where I heard it or learned it. Um, I don't think that I made it up on my own. doesn't sound like something I would make up on my own, though I would love to have claimed this. But it was this thought. It was, what would it do for you to have someone in your life who said, I will walk with you for the rest of your life and see to it that you finish your life as a man or a woman after God's heart? What would it do to you to know that you had a, a person that came to you and said, I'm going to walk with you as long as the Lord will have me walk with you so that I can see you get to the end of it as a faithful man or woman of God? I think the lingering question for us in light of uh, Ruth and Naomi's fidelity to one another is this question, to whom are you called to be faithful? What person or what group of people and, you, and, and don't just say, you know, my, my family or my spouse or those, my brother or sister, because that doesn't do justice to the image that Naomi and Ruth provide. Two women who by all measures ought to be outsiders to each other, who are who, who, uh, beyond your ties of family and romance, who or to who all is God calling you to be faithful to? Naomi wants to ensure that Ruth has a way out of their poverty, and vulnerability, and given the circumstances surrounding Ruth's gleaning in Boaz's field, Naomi then devises a plan. Her plan is essentially to have uh, Ruth approach Boaz and to propose to pr propose him that he should just marry her. That's Naomi's plan, in a nutshell. Naomi instructs uh, Ruth to put on her best dress. And there's a song in my head that put on your anybody best dress. No, no. I really should not let you guys know, like, what's going on in the mind of your pastor when he's preaching. I'll just keep some of these things to myself. <laughs> Rightfully so. Put on her best dress, her finest perfume, and head to the threshing floor where Boaz uh, will be threshing the barley. Threshing is the process uh, whereby you separate the barley grains from, uh, from the head so that you can grind it and then use it to, uh, to make flour and bread. The threshing floor is actually a kind of a wide area, uh, and the threshing was a communal act. Uh, it was a, a kind of a social event to, to thresh it. It was a bit hard work, so folks got together to do it. Naomi says that uh, Boaz is going to be there. He's going to take his dinner there. He's going to, uh, and then once he's finished uh, eating and drinking, he's going to sleep there. Um, threshing floors often uh, were places where it caught the breeze, and so it would have been a place to kind of rest and relax. She tells Ruth, once he's asleep, uncover his feet and lie next to him. Uh, and that's all she tells Ruth to do, and then Ruth follows through. In verse 7, Chapter 3, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a young woman lying at his feet. Now, this section, it's filled with cultural nuance, and some of which is just simply veiled to us today, uh, uh, thousands of years later. But, but I want to address a couple of things that are going on in this section of the story and highlight how I actually think that they bolster our insight into Ruth's character. And what I want to address quickly is first, Ruth's uncovering of Boaz's feet, and two, Ruth laying beside Boaz. 
So uncovering uh, the feet and laying down real quickly. Um, Naomi instructs uh, uh, Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet, and the passage says that Ruth went and uncovered his feet. The author of Ruth um, here, some language that we, that we can miss, is using sensual, romantic, and even sexual language here. The author is using language of, of ambiguity. Uh, the word used for feet, uh, it's actually a double entendre for genitalia. And in this section, the author seems to go to great pains to leave the story ambiguous, and it gives the, the whole scene this, this romantic air about it. And so some commentators actually explore the question of whether Ruth and Boaz engage in sexual intercourse here because of the language. But the phrase doesn't always carry sexual connotation. Other times it can simply mean the straightforward reading, the uncovering of, of feet. The other piece of instruction that Naomi gives is to lay down beside him, near his feet and his legs, an instruction that Ruth executes. And I'll just tell you, I, I don't actually think that the most faithful reading of this section is one that has Ruth sexually seducing Boaz. And while the section, it, it's certainly uh, provocative and charming, I don't think the author wants us to see Naomi's plans as one of some kind of sexual entrapment of Boaz. And, and I base that on uh, sort of on that of that reading on two evidences the first is the character of Ruth and Boaz or what we know of their character so far in this story and then the second is their response to each other in this moment given what we've heard of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi for that matter they're characterized as as women and men of of love and of justice and of compassion and faith and so to read this passage as one of some cunning seduction you have to go through sort of this round of moral gymnastics to sort out what to make of their interactions prior to this moment. And then we actually have to look at their response to one another. Boaz is startled awake. The original language uh, sort of in a contemporary translation would believe that he was scared awake and freaked out uh, to find a woman at his feet. And then what Ruth says in, in uh, verse 9, uh, Boaz responds, Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of my family. What Ruth is essentially saying to Boaz in this moment is marry me. She's not saying sleep with me. But she's asking Boaz for his hand in marriage and she's asking not based on her beauty or any sexual or seductive encounter, but rather she's highlighting his familial connections. She's appealing to his character, not her beauty. When Ruth approaches Boaz with a perfumed body and a nice dress and lays at his feet, this is a cultural connotation where she is saying, and when she says to Boaz, spread your garment over me, Boaz is rightly interpreting that as she's asking me to marry her. But Ruth, <laughs> Naomi told Ruth, wait, and Boaz will tell you what to do. But Ruth doesn't do that. She doesn't wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She actually just sort of seizes the moment. And instead of seducing Boaz, Ruth made an appeal to the man's ethics. Ruth, as a foreign woman in the story, she is seizing upon her own agency in this moment and moving the story forward on her own terms, appealing to Boaz on the foundation of character and of integrity. And Boaz, for his part, he replies in verse 11, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do what you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. He says to her, I know your reputation. You, you are a true and faithful and virtuous person. Ruth may have been an attractive woman. I, I, we don't know. But that's not what Boaz addresses. He doesn't address her beauty. 
He is wooed by her kindness, by her in- integrity, her, her, her care for Naomi. And so even in this moment, under the cover of night, in the secluded corner of the threshing floor, Ruth is a woman of integrity. The same woman who had pledged her loyalty to her mother-in-law in the light of day on the Moabite road to Bethlehem is the same woman appealing to the character of Boaz under the cover of darkness. She's the same person at night as she is in the day. She is a woman of integrity. She is the same person when everyone is looking as when no one is looking. She is living an, an integrous, an integrated life. When, when we live lives of duplicity, in one way or another, when we, uh, when we present uh, one way at work and another way at play and another way at church and another online, well, well that's the opposite of integrity. That's the opposite of integration. That's actually disintegration. And we can only live lives of disintegration for so long until we reach the end of ourselves. Ruth commends us to live lives of integrity, to be who we are at night as we are in the day. Um, my daughter goes to school up in Northwest, and um, her school right now is, is, uh, they have, is at the University of the District of Columbia campus. And so to drop her off, I've got to park in a parking garage, go uh, drop her off, and then come back to the parking garage. Um, last week... I dropped her off, or I went to go pick her up. So I'm parked in the parking garage. I walk over to her school, get her from school, and now I've got my seven-year-old daughter. We're walking back through the parking garage, and I have to sort of navigate a little bit of traffic in order to get back to my car. So I'm holding Annalise. I've got her by the hand, seven years old. Me and her, it's a little bit dark in the parking garage. I'm walking through, and, you know, there's cars here, and so I'm kind of looking to see, all right, you, you see me, right? Don't run me over. I know it's a parking garage. Nobody's moving, but, you know, just to, I want to be safe, trying to be safe, and I'm looking, car doesn't move. When I start to step, the car jumps, kind of scares me. You know, I'm like, yo, I've got a little girl here, which, you know, why you stop, just stop, right? So I'm looking, car moves, and then stops. I'm like, all right, we're good. So I keep moving across in front of the car. When I get kind of midway to the car, guy starts honking, beeping at me. Now I'm mad. I said, I'm thinking, man, first you jump, like I got my kid here, like, and now I'm trying to cross by and you're honking at me. So I'm passing through. I'm mean mugging this guy. (laughs) Looking at this dude, like, who, you don't see me with my precious baby girl here, man, I tell you. I'm looking at this dude, me, and uh, and then he rolls down his window right when I get past him. So I stop and I'm like, what's up? (laughs) Window rolls down, guy looks at me and says, what's up, Pastor Watson? Is Easy Wiedemeyer leads our, <laughs> leads our Enneagram small group. So I go, what's up, Easy? <laughs> I come over, dab him up. I'm like, hey, man, good to see you. What you doing over here, you know? I walked through, Annalise was like, who was that? I said, man, one of our church members. She said, man, he kind of scared me. I said, yeah, it's a good thing I didn't go in on one of our church members. That's... <laughs> That's poor form right there, man. You can't be doing that. Not a way to win friends or build a church. <laughs> Lord kept me, protected me. 
So I'm the same man at night as I am during the day, because it was a whole lot of difference between that first, what's up, and the second, what's up? <laughs> Went through a little emotional change right there. I want to I be a man of integrity, church. I'm still on the journey. I'm not standing up here preaching this as one uh, who has accomplished it or who has arrived, but I'm one who with you is on a journey working, still working to be the same man in the night as I am in the day, to be the same man when things are hard as I am when things are good, to be the same man in the harshness of winter as I am in the glory of springtime, to be the same man when the debts are high as I am when my wallet is full. And I want to grow to hold the kind of integrity that mirrors our foremother Ruth's, and that's her invitation to us to be women and men of integrity. So I think the lingering question here is, where are you living into integrity? And where are you disintegrating? And we need to call out to the God who saves. The last thing I want to touch on um, is a title that Naomi and Ruth used for Boaz. It was first introduced in chapter 2, and it shows up again here in chapter 3, and the phrase or the title is Guardian Redeemer. Look again at at verse 9. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, uh, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And then again, down in Boaz's response in uh, verses 11 and 12. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do what you ask. All the people of the town know that you're a woman of noble character. Verse 12. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. The Hebrew word there for guardian redeemer is is goel, and it gets translated a few different ways depending on the Bible translations that you're using, and some it's simply translated as next of kin, as in the NRSV, and others it's, it's kinsman redeemer. If you have an NIV translation, which is the one that we use most often here at Christ City, there's a note at the bottom about goel, And it defines uh, this as the one who has a legal obligation to redeem or to take care of a relative that's in serious difficulty. And in legal arrangements, a a kinsman redeemer was required to secure the land of a deceased relative to ensure that it stayed within the family. This was to secure um, economic prosperity for the family. And in marriage, a a brother was required to marry his sister-in-law if her husband dies to ensure family heritage and lineage, again, in this uh, culture of the day. It doesn't appear that Ruth is is claiming that Boaz, um, his his Goel designation, she's not claiming it in sort of the letter of the law. Again, she's a Moabite. She may not be quite as familiar with this. But but rather, she's she's making a more general uh, request. Boaz is related to Naomi distantly, and he can legally and relationally be the guardian redeemer that Ruth and Naomi need. And identifying Boaz as a potential guardian redeemer Naomi and Ruth, what they're doing is they're exercising hope. And Ruth is actually inviting Boaz into that hope. Here's what I mean. In in chapter 2, when Ruth and Boaz first meet, Boaz says this. Boaz replied in chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and how you came to live with a people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
Boaz, Boaz actually has a hope for Naomi and for Ruth. He's exercising hope as well, and he has a hope that the God of Israel will care for Ruth and Naomi. And that phrase that Boaz uses in his prayer of hope and of blessing, the God of Israel under whose wings you uh, take refuge, that's the same phrasing that Ruth is now using when she comes to Boaz and says, spread the corner of your garment over me. It's, it's the same phraseology in Hebrew. So she is essentially saying to Boaz, why don't you become the answer to your own prayer? Why don't you, why don't you become the answer? Why don't you step into the hope that we're hoping for? Why don't you be the way that God provides? Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, they are all exercising hope that God will rescue. They are demonstrating hope, and they demonstrate it throughout the story. Ruth's commitment to Naomi, that's a demonstration of hope. Working hard in the gleaning fields, that's a demonstration and an exercise of hope. Vulnerability in asking Boaz for a hand in marriage, that's demonstrating hope. Faithful in generosity and in small things. All demonstrations of hope that the God of Israel might move on their behalf. Boaz tells Ruth that there's a, a family member that's, uh, that is closer in relation than he is. And that this family member has priority in serving as the guardian redeemer. And so their hope, their hope has to linger a while while Boaz sorts the situation out with the other relative. Ruth uh, returns to Naomi and re- relates the events back to her. In verse 18, Naomi, she says, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Naomi, with, with wisdom that just comes with age and sorrow and a life of faith, she says to Ruth, wait, but wait in hope. I think hope is, it can often be in short supply these days, I fear. Cynicism, skepticism, doubt. These, these are the qualities that we seem to traffic in more readily. Hope opens us to vulnerability. It highlights our weaknesses. Hope exposes us to the possibility of pain. But Ruth, she calls us to hope and believe that God is working for our redemption. I was, I was reminded again of this uh, invitation to hope. I was reminded again recently of something that took place in our family a couple years back. Um, I, I've shared this story then, but I think it bears repeating now. Um, this is a sign my wife made. Um, this sign actually hangs. Uh, it hangs in our office. Um, the sign was made by my wife when she, she was using it when she was protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016. It reminds us to continue to continue to pray uh, for justice and for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, I don't know if you remember, you know, I don't know if you know what happened or maybe you've forgotten, but just to give you a bit of background for a moment. Um, this is a pipeline that was traveling from North Dakota to Illinois, and if you're asking what in the world this has to do with Ruth, give me a minute, just walk with me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the slow road here. It's, it's a pipeline that's traveling from North Dakota to Illinois, and it was slated to go through a Sioux sacred site. It also skirts a Sioux reservation, putting the water resources of the Sioux 
in tremendous jeopardy. And for many Sioux and many Native Americans, this has the feel and appearance uh, of another in a long history of encroachments by the U.S. on Indian sovereignty, a disrespect, and frankly, oppression. And so it stirred a lot of emotions. Now, I know my red beard and bald head might not tip you off to this, but my family, my mother is Chickasaw Indian. And at the time, I was talking to my mom a lot about this. Um, my aunt is a tribal legislator with the Chickasaw Nation. She's been there for over two decades. And Lisa, a woman committed to communicating the good news of Jesus and displaying God's love, particularly for those that have been historically oppressed and marginalized in our country, she had been attending prayer vigils and protests for months with other Native Americans here in D.C. And at dinner one night, our family, uh, you know, we're praying, we're talking about things, and we're praying for God's kingdom to come in this situation. And those prayers, frankly, were mostly led by Lisa and began spilling over into our kids. <laughs> Some of you may think, oh, that's a weird, you know, kind of pasta and red sauce night. And so what do you think about the Dakota Access line? That was <laughs> dinners at the Watsons. <laughs> so we're talking about the challenges that the Sioux are facing in the history of America's engagement with First Nations people. And so it's back and forth. And at one point, the kids ask me, Dad, what do you think will happen? And, and I just responded from a place of, of cynicism. And I just went on this tirade. And I remember saying the phrase, we have 500 years of history. We know exactly how this thing's going to end. And just my, my anger and my skepticism. And I just sort of went on and ranted for a bit. And then I stopped. And I killed the conversation. And then Nathan, who was 11 at the time, he starts to pray. And he prays through tears, and he prays prayers of hope, prayers that God, our great guardian redeemer, would make things right, that he would protect the land and the people there. And my cynicism was put to shame by the prayers and the demonstration of hope from an 11-year-old. And there's still lots of twists and turns with the access pipeline, and there's still aches for hope and justice, which is still on the horizon for sure. But what Nathan, my son, not the pro prophet, he is a prophet. You got me. What Nathan and, and, and what Ruth woo us towards is a life lived in light of that hope that God is working, that famines and death don't have the last word, and so the question for us, even in this moment, is where are you hoping? Towards what end, what aim is Ruth inviting you to lay hope at the Lord's feet? These are, there's certainly other qualities that Ruth and Naomi display and that we'll explore uh, next week. But these three of, of fidelity and integrity and hope, these are the invitations, I think, to us this morning. A question of fidelity, who, who are you called to? The, the, the invitation of integrity, where are you living into integrity or where are you disintegrating in your life and need God to intervene? And in hope, where are you hoping? My prayer is that we are a people who follow in Ruth's footsteps for the sake of the kingdom. Let us hold to these things, say yes to these invitations that our foremother Ruth extends to us. Let me pray for us.
Come, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be speaking to us. Spirit, I trust that you are. There are things in our souls that you have been stirring as we explore the testimony of Ruth to us, of Naomi to us, of Boaz to us. Spirit, I pray that you, would, that you, would, that you wouldn't let us wiggle out of it. That you wouldn't let us skate past the right response in light of this gospel. God, that you would do your work in our lives, that you would find us faithful in responding. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.